Thank you for those words of encouragement and challenge and insight. I was just uh, blessed as well. And just, again, thinking about the, the beauty of holiness and what God wants to create in this group to display that holiness as a body. Uh, it's one thing for each of us to display that individually, and that is very important. That has to happen or it can't happen as a body. But when it happens as a body, it's such a powerful um, reality. All right, we have the the overhead up and going. Um, this is just kind of a side issue here, but um, thought I'd like to introduce you to our families. Uh, we don't get opportunity to uh, bring them along, and so um, here's a picture of of uh, Barbara's family, and um, I guess there's a little bit of connection here in the community through the the um, uh, beachy connections of the past. Um, she has two daughters, two sons, and is going on 16th grandchild, I think. Uh, that one's still in the hopper. Uh, it's coming. And uh, so that's, that's her family. And um, yeah, let's see here. What do I do now? There we go. That's my family. Um, I have three daughters and two sons. We had two weddings within two weeks last summer because of dad and mom's schedule. Uh, had to force them right close together, give them enough time in between for the one to have a, a uh, honeymoon and then they get back so we can have the second wedding so we could get back over to Thailand. And so... Um, Three weddings in in 13 months. That's enough for anyone. Um, these are our two families, and um, they're praying for us and, and supporting us this week as we're with you. So um, pray for them, too, as you think of them. Tonight we want to talk about God's design, and especially looking at the Old Testament this evening. I know when we talk about the Old Testament, everybody can, oh, okay, well, Old Testament, that's uh, kind of archaic and it was way back there it doesn't really apply to us any day anymore in this day and so we kind of shut down and I'm sure you won't do that but if I'm really convinced that if holiness is going to be deeply rooted in our in our churches then we as people will have to develop a love for God's law now I'm guessing that a high percentage of this congregation would have Amish background maybe one or two generations back. Is that true? How many of you would have Amish background at least two generations back? A very high percentage of you. I have, my parents were never Amish, but my grandparents were. And you know, I, I sense something amongst us and I'm not accusing you of this because I really don't know your group, but in a general sense, I, I, I sense that many of us from that background are kind of this way about laws. Uh, don't give me too much of that stuff. I, you know, I had all I need right up to here with those laws. And, and so it's easy for us to, uh, I'm not sure about this whole thing, 
I like to say tonight that I'm really convinced that if you're going to love holiness, you're going to have to love law. That's the bottom line. I'll try to convince you that if you're not convinced. The law will need to be understood from its source. The law needs to be understood from its source. And that's, that's pretty important if we're going to, to live a holy life. It's not, it's not the law and holiness are not one and the same thing, but the law and holiness come from the same source. Okay? I know that I grew up in the 60s and 70s, and there was a cultural revolution that was going on. My generation was the hippie generation, and um, we didn't like any laws. We, we had this great big long word to describe this whole scenario, and that was anti-disestablishmentarianism. That's about as long a word as you can get. I don't remember how many letters there are in that. But uh, it's almost like supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. Uh, it's one of those long words. And it, the whole thing was against establishment and against the, the forms and, and laws and so forth. So law was falsely viewed as the antonym to freedom. So we have the law on one side and freedom on the other side. My generation said, forget the law, we're going to have freedom. And we went into all kinds of sexual social revolution in, in the 60s and 70s, throwing out the law. We don't need that anymore. And unfortunately, there was many of us that kind of followed suit in more of a spiritual way. I think a lot of contemporary evangelicalism has the same drumbeat when it comes to this whole thing of, of law. And we kind of get the idea from some of our pastors, teachers, writers of books, and so forth, that the Old Testament is God's justice, the New Testament is His mercy. The Old Testament is His law, the New Testament is His love. And we kind of want to make that separation so that we can kind of dispel the, the Old Testament and grab the New Testament. And so we even reduce our Bibles down to the size of 27 shorter books and call this the New Testament. We walk around with a New Testament in our pocket because the Old Testament is really not all that necessary, we think. And, and we, we, you know, we listen to and read the, the New Testament, and rightly, rightfully so in some ways. But one of the things that's really challenged me is David's love for the law. David had a tremendous love for the law. And I just wonder if we can have the right attitude toward God and holiness if we don't have David's attitude toward the law. Is it possible to have his perspective about holiness and righteousness and joy in the Lord that's all the way through Psalms if we don't have David's perspective about the law. You've read through Psalm 119 with the exception of about five verses in that entire longest chapter in the, in the Bible. All of those verses talk about the way that he loves and respects and is so hungry for the law, the statutes, the precepts, the testimonies. 
can we have a biblical view of holiness and righteousness if we don't have David's perspective about the law? I'd like to just leave that question with you as we get started tonight because I really believe that a godly view of the Old Testament is so, so mandatory to our spiritual development as Christians. It's not that we stay in the Old Testament, but it's a foundation that we need to, to understand. Any good-hearted father that's in this congregation tonight has probably made some guidelines for their children. And so if a father says, Now, Sonny, I don't want you to go past the sidewalk here. If you go past the sidewalk, Daddy's going to have to spank you. Don't go past the sidewalk. Now, for me to observe him or hear him saying that and to conclude, Oh, boy, he is just trying to make sure that that boy uh, it respects his authority and he's just trying to exert his authority to make sure that this little boy understands that. If I were to have that perspective, you'd cry out, no, 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 that's not why he's doing it. He's doing it because he wants to protect his son. He doesn't want him to go across that sidewalk and get out in the traffic and get hurt or get killed. And so he's giving that guideline to protect him. He wants the best for his son. Any good-hearted father is giving those directions to protect his child, not just to see if he's going to obey him. Well, that, that's secondary at best. The main reason is he wants that child to be protected, not be hurt. If that can be true of the fathers that are sitting in this congregation, how much more is it true about a heavenly father who gave us some guidelines about life? What's his heart about your protection and, and your joy and your, your well-being in life? A good-hearted father gives rules because he wants to, to protect and bless his children. And I believe that's the spirit of our Heavenly Father as he gave the law in the Old Testament. There's a quote that I'd like to share with you. Um, I don't believe Peter Berger is necessarily a believer, but he makes this, con or this um, uh, comment about theologians and about us as, as Christians. He says this. Uh, wait a minute. He doesn't say this. This is what David says. Um, let me jump ahead of this. Let's go to this. Um, he says, unless our theologian has the inner fortitude of a desert saint, he has only one effective remedy against the threat of cognitive collapse in the face of these pressures. Cognitive is uh, intellectual, ability to think through, rational uh, collapse. If he doesn't have some, um, unless he has the fortitude of a desert saint, you know, where he's sitting out there on top of some pinnacle for 15 years, uh, not eating anything except for what's brought to him once a week or something like that. A desert saint, okay, that's what they're talking about. Uh, unless he has that kind of fortitude, he's going to, he's going to have a threat against his, his thinking processes. He must huddle together with like-minded fellow deviants. Now, you don't like being called fellow deviants, but that's what you are. You are fellow deviants to our culture. 
Okay? The culture that's out there in America today is very, very different from what you are living, your lifestyle. You're a deviant from that culture. And so I'm, maybe you don't like that term, but tonight that's what it's going to be. Okay, you're like-minded fellow deviants, for just a little bit at least. And you are, you must huddle together very closely indeed. You've got to get together. You've got to talk about it. You've got to get in a huddle. Only in a counter-community of considerable strength does cognitive deviance have a chance to maintain itself. That's why you come together week after week, Wednesday after Wednesday, whatever you come together as a church. You come together to reinforce and strengthen one another in this. The counter-community provides continuing therapy against the creeping doubts as to whether, after all, one may be wrong and the majority out there right. To fulfill its function of providing social support for the deviant body of, uh, of knowledge, the counter-community, that's you and me, must provide a strong sense of solidarity among its members, and it must be quite close in relation to the outside. In some, it must be a kind of ghetto. You don't like living in a ghetto? Uh, you are in a ghetto. You're the deviants that live in a ghetto to reinforce the things that, that are, are important to you because it's so different from those who are outside. Um, but I would like to just say this before we go on. What happens in a ghetto shouldn't stay in a ghetto. Okay? When you're playing football, young men playing football, you uh, get together, you have a huddle. But you can't win the game in the huddle. You've got to get out of that huddle and get out and go against the, the opposition. You are in a huddle tonight. We're all gathered around. You're going to carry it that far and you're going to run over there and you're going to go this way and so forth. We're giving each other directions in a sense, but we can't win the game in this huddle. We've got to get out and pass that ball on in the conflict of life. Well, tonight I would really like to, to um, uh, start out just talking about the, the, the first phase of the beauty of holiness. Last night we kind of gave an overall introduction to it. But the, the first phase in God's design for the beauty of holiness happened in a garden. It happened in the Garden of Eden. When God created the garden, He began with the garden, He began with beauty, He began with holiness. What was in that environment? You know that animals were in that holy environment? You ever think about that? You know, that doesn't mean your cat is going to heaven. I'm not sure about that, or your dog, or your pony, or whatever. I, but there were animals in this uncorrupted place called Garden of Eden. And so there was the animals, there was birds there, and I think there were some fish swimming in the, the little ponds and so forth, whatever there might have been there. I don't know what, what kind of waterways there were. There were trees. There were fruit trees all over the place in this pre-sin environment. 
of holiness. There were mangoes, I think, uh, hopefully. Uh, there, were, there were peaches, there were pears, there were apples, there were um, oranges, there were grapefruit. I, I don't know what all was there, but there were fruit trees in this pre-sin environment of holiness. There were flowers. I'm convinced that God made flowers before the fall, and they were all there. Um, there was, it also talks, if you read in the first two chapters of Genesis, that there was a river. Uh, so there must have been some fish there, I imagine. Maybe a few crocodiles. Uh, who knows what was in that river. There was gold there uh, in that environment. And something called bedellium. Anybody know what bedellium is? I looked it up this afternoon and tried to figure out what it was, and there was different ideas. One thought it was some kind of a gum structure that came off of different kinds of trees. And I'm not sure what the advantage of that was and what the blessing of that was. Another one thought that it was some perfume. Well, I thought that was kind of a nice idea, so we're going to stick to the perfume thing tonight. Whether that's true or not, I don't know. Uh, but uh, the bedellium was, was in there. It smelled good. Um, it also had onyx. Uh, it says bedallium and onyx stone, and I'm not really familiar with onyx stone either, but I understand that you can make, um, you can make uh, cabinets and so forth out of onyx stone, and you can put a light inside the cabinet, and it gleams out through the translucent, beautiful translucent uh, onyx. Uh, so again, a lot of beauty there, but the greatest thing that God brought in the garden, that he, he created in the garden, Incidentally, fellows, you and I weren't created in the garden. There wasn't any garden around when you and I were created. We were out there in the bush someplace, you know, out in the, in the swamp or whatever the, the primordial soup was that we came out of. But we, in mud, yes, uh, made out of mud. But the, the last thing that the scripture says and talks about in relation to what was made in the garden was our sister's. It was Eve. And uh, just the, the, the apex, in a sense, of God's creative week was to bring the beautiful woman, the, the bride for Eve, into that garden. And I'm talking about all these different beautiful animals, flowers, trees, and now God brings um, a wife for, for Adam. Uh, just a, an atmosphere of holiness, an atmosphere of purity, an atmosphere of joy, an atmosphere of delight, uh, an atmosphere of, of uh, discovery, just so many positive, beautiful things in this atmosphere of holiness. Wow. That was phase one. That was stage one. God had designed it. That's where man was to live. No sin and just a beautiful environment. Stage one, the first setting for holiness. But you know what happened. It all was tragically destroyed in chapter three. The fall was catastrophic. And it says, Cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to thee. What a catastrophic change. 
we can't really wrap our minds around that kind of change because we can't really envision what it was like before. And, and to all of a sudden have all of that beauty so marred. The fall was catastrophic. Beauty was gone. The garden was gone. Holiness was gone. It was a saddest day in the entire time of, of God's creation. It really was. It had to be the saddest day. Adam had lost what God intended for him to be. Adam and Eve had lost it. This was stage one. This was the end. This was the closing of stage one. And the beauty of holiness was now closed. Holiness had been, obs had been observed. Now it was obscure. Holiness and beauty was but a memory in the past. What a catastrophic change. But you know, I believe that God wasn't done. God wasn't up there scratching his head. What am I going to do now? Why? They really messed it up. Got to come up with a new plan. No. No, he was not surprised. He was ready for another possibility of demonstrating holiness to the world. I don't know how this all, I mean, only the mind of God can put this together, so I don't have really a lot of insight as to how all this was going to take place. I just know that God wasn't confused by what took place, and I know that he had an, another way that he was going to demonstrate the, the beauty of holiness to uh, to the world, to the creation. And so he had a people, a group of people that he was going to use. And he initiated this group of people with the man Moses. It says, And Moses went up in, unto God, and the Lord called unto him out of the mountain, saying, Thus shalt thou say to the house of Jacob, to the, and tell the children of Israel, We have seen what ye have seen what I did unto the Egyptians and how I bear you on eagles wings and brought you unto myself this is plan two this is the second part the second demonstration the second observance of holiness I have bore you on eagle wings and brought you to myself now therefore I will if ye will obey my voice and keep my covenant then ye shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people, for all the earth is mine. I think that kind of captures what his second demonstration of the beauty of holiness was supposed to look like. In God's sovereign wisdom, he planned to show the beauty of holiness through a people group called Israel. Just three, three verses I'll, I'll add to this. In, from Leviticus, Leviticus 19, verse 2. It says, Speak unto all the congregation of the children of Israel and say unto them, Now, he's talking to this specially selected group that are supposed to demonstrate the beauty of his holiness to the world. He says, Say unto them, You will be holy. In other words, set apart. You're going to be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. 
So, okay, Israel, your assignment is to be holy because I'm holy. And then in, in the next chapter, chapter 20, verse 7, he says, Sanctify yourselves or cleanse yourselves, therefore, and be ye holy, be ye saints, be wonderfully different than everyone else, uh, contrastingly amazing. That's what he wants them to be, a holy people, for I am the Lord your God. So God is, the, the first couple sinned and caused the sin to come. Now God has got a group of people, a nation of people, Israel, and he's saying, I want you to be amazingly different, contrastingly amazing compared to all the other, world, uh, other people in the world. A little later on in that same chapter, Leviticus chapter 20, he says, And ye shall not walk in the manners of the nations which I cast out before you, for they commit all these things, and therefore I abhorred them. But I have said unto you, Ye shall inherit the land, and I will give it unto you to possess, a land that flows with milk and honey. I am the Lord your God, which have separated you from other people. Holy people separated you from the other people. And ye shall be holy. You're going to be unique, amazingly different unto me, for I am the Lord, I am holy, and I have severed you from all the other people, that you should be mine. Now, what, what would this congregation feel like if God spoke out of heaven and said those kind of things to you? I don't think you'd fall asleep. I don't think you would... Something in deep inside you would start tingling. Really? You're going to do that through Berea? Berea is going to be this place that shows the glory of God? Well, that's what God was saying to Israel. And I can kind of sense that the Israelites were kind of feeling like, Oh, really? We're going to be that people? At least some of them. I don't know how many of them would have felt that. But he was cho choosing them to be a very special, holy people, set apart, not just to be different, weird, strange, kind of corny. No, not at all. It was they were going to be so delightfully different, it would be amazing. Remember, he's a good father, and he wants good things for his children. In um, Deuteronomy 20, 26, it says, And the Lord hath avouched thee this day to be his peculiar people, as he hath promised thee, that thou shouldest keep all his commandments, and to make, and to make thee high above all nations which he hath made, in praise and in name and in honor, and that thou mayest be an holy people unto the Lord thy God, as he hath spoken. It goes on in chapter 28. It says, And it shall come to pass, if thou shalt hearken diligently unto the voice of the Lord thy God, to observe to do all his commandments, which I command thee this day, that the Lord thy God will set thee on high above all nations of the earth. And the Lord shall establish thee, and holy people unto himself, as he has sworn unto thee, if thou shalt keep the commandments of the Lord thy God, and walk in his ways. And reflecting back to his promise to Abraham, in Genesis chapter 12, where he said, I will make of thee a great nation, and in thee shall all the nations of the world be blessed. All the people 
All the families of the earth be blessed through them. A holy nation. This was God's intent. And I can maybe capture just a little bit of the, the thought that you know, God wants to show that he's a holy God, he's a loving God, he's a wonderful God. That whole message has become so obscured by the sin of all the people around that God is not wanting to have a group of people who would demonstrate this to everyone. He doesn't want just to be experienced by Israel, but he needs somebody that can demonstrate it to the entire world. And so he's saying, Israel, I've chosen you to be that special people that you can show the whole world how much I love you and how much I'm concerned about you. Because of his covenant with, with um, Israel, he, he gave them a very special um, token, a very special symbol that would, in a sense, separate them from the others in just kind of a, a physical uh, way. And that was that whenever a male child was born, it was to be circumcised. And that was the, the mark that they were separate, that they were different as a people group. And that was recorded in Genesis chapter 17, where it says, And God said unto Abraham, Thou shalt keep my covenant, therefore thou and thy seed after thee in their generation. This is my covenant which ye shall keep between me and you and thy seed after thee. Every man-child among you shall be circumcised, and ye shall circumcise the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be a token of the covenant betwixt you and me. And he that is the eight days old shall be circumcised among you, every man-child in your generations. He that is born in the house or bought with money of a stranger, which is not of thy seed. There was a special marking on this group of people that God was going to use to, to demonstrate how beautiful His holiness is to the entire world. So there was this unusual, special token. Um, <clears throat> a couple more verses in Deuteronomy chapter 7. For thou art an holy people unto the Lord thy God, and the Lord thy God hath chosen thee to be a special people unto himself, above all people that are upon the face of the earth. And the Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you because you were more in number. It wasn't because you are the biggest group, they are the most popular group. That wasn't it. No, not because you were more in number than any other people, for ye are the fewest of all people. You people are not the biggest group of people in um, Elkhart County. Anabaptists are not the biggest group of uh, uh, believers in, in uh, America. He doesn't choose you or us because of our size. He's trying to choose a group of people that even though they're small, they're going to be powerful. They're going to be dynamic. They're going to, sit, they're going to say something through their lives. Again, in Deuteronomy chapter 9, Speak not thou in thine heart after that the Lord thy God hath cast them out from before thee, saying, From my righteousness, yeah, we're a nice people, we're a good people, that's why God chose us. God says, no, don't say that. Don't speak in your heart that it's because of your righteousness the Lord has brought you and to possess this land. But it's because of the wickedness of those out there that I want to show my beauty, the beauty of my holiness. 
But for the wickedness of these nations, the Lord doth drive them out from before thee, not for thy righteousness or for thy uprightness of thine, of thine heart, dost thou go to possess their land, but for the wickedness of those nations, the Lord thy God doth drive them out from before thee, that he may perform the word which the Lord swear unto his father Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And one more verse here in Psalm 43. But know that the Lord has set apart him that is godly for himself. Israel was not genetically any better than any other group of people. They really weren't. Neither are the Mennonites or the Baptists, or Assembly of God, or whoever you want to uh, name there. It wasn't what they were, it's what they would become as God led them, as they listened to God. It wasn't what they were, but it's what they would become. The reason for Israel's blessing was not because they were bigger, or smarter, or more obedient. They were chosen to be a special revelation to the world of the beauty of God's holiness, independent of their background. Nations would get a glimpse of God's will for mankind. They get a glimpse of his glory. They get a glimpse of his mercy. They get a glimpse of his love through this group of people. That's why he was going to bless them. Exodus chapter 19 says, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. We mentioned that scripture last night. They would be the channel through whom God would bless all people groups. They were to reflect the beauty of God's holy ways in social and spiritual and economic ways. God was looking for a way to let the world know how beautiful holiness is. You know, God's, design, God's law was designed to make Israel the most joyful, prosperous, healthy, charactered people on the face of the earth. And I believe that that is the background for the whole Old Testament law. That's why God gave them the law. He didn't give them the Old Testament law. The purpose of God's law was not to make them squirm under his authoritarian thumb to, until they would squeal uncle. That was not his design. His design was to show the world how beautiful holiness is. The life that he wanted to give. Let's turn to number 514 in your songbooks. Uh, I'd like to just sing that song here at this point. Uh, it helps us to understand a bit in a more of an ascetic way the, um, the beauty of holiness. 514. Now, wait a minute. I have the wrong one. Um, I have a different, I was using a different songbook. Um, Redeemed how I love to proclaim it. Is that in this book? Somebody know what the number is? Especially the, the third verse there I want us to, to capture. Is it in here? It's not. It's not in it. What about that other songbook? Does the other one have it in? I should have double checked this. I was assuming you had a different songbook than what you did. So I don't have the right one here. Um, yeah, that doesn't have it either. Um, do you know it? Yeah, 
You know what? And we try singing it. Um, I'm not sure if I can get all the verses. Just keep singing if I get if I stumble on this. Um, redeemed, how I love to proclaim it. Redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Redeemed through His infinite mercy. His child and forever I am. Redeemed. I know I shall see in his beauty the king in whose law I delight. Okay, let's try singing that one. I know I shall see in his beauty the king in whose law I delight, who lovingly guardeth my footsteps and giveth me songs in the night. Redeemed, redeemed, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Redeem, redeem, his child and forever I am. I'd like to look just briefly now at some of the things that have dawned in my mind that prove to me that God's intention for the Old Testament law that he was giving to Israel was for their their protection, for their joy, for their safety. He had them in mind in this beauty of holiness. It wasn't he was just trying to see if they're going to be obedient. He wasn't just making rules to, um, to force them to obey. They really didn't have any deeper meaning than that. No, what he gave them in the Old Testament was for their protection, for their joy. And it went over almost everything in their life. It touched almost everything in their life. Um, for instance, it touched their diet. Now, again, I can't explain all the ins and outs of this. I don't have enough background uh, to do that. But there were some things they weren't supposed to eat. Things like that. Uh, now, some of you might enjoy those. Uh, some of my friends over in Thailand seem to enjoy them, but... I, I don't, and I think I have biblical reason for not enjoying that. <laughs> um, because there's some things that God said, it's just, don't eat those, those are unclean. Um, he says there in Leviticus 11, Ye shall not make for yourselves abominable, um, abominable with any creeping thing that creepeth, neither shall ye make yourselves unclean with them, that ye should be defiled thereby. For I am the Lord your God, ye shall therefore sanctify yourselves, and be holy, for I am holy." Neither shall you defile yourselves with any manner of creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. Thank you. 
For I am the Lord that bringeth you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. Ye shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. You know, he said, don't eat those things, but you can eat this. He made the difference between what was clean and unclean. Now, I'm sorry if any of you are hog farmers. I'm not against you tonight, um, <clears throat> even though that was one of the things that was unclean. So uh, I'll try to explain that in just a little bit. But I think God knew best which kinds of meat and which kinds of food were the best for our physical bodies. Who knows better? Does Dr. So-and-so down in Middlebury or Napanee or wherever you go, does he know better than God does about what food is good for your body? No, I'm sorry, he doesn't. He didn't create your body. God did. He knows what's good for it and what's not going to be good for it. And so his instructions that he gave to Israel was, this is what's going to keep you healthy. Nutritious meals. But we still like that ham, you know. And we like that bacon and, and so forth. Now, I'm convinced that in the New Testament, Jesus says he makes all foods clean. And so there's not a moral violation of eating some of these unclean, even if you eat some of those critters up there at the top. Uh, I don't think there's any moral violation. But I have this hunch, and it's only a hunch. Okay, I don't have a lot of biblical background for it, but I, have, I understand from many doctors and writings, uh, what they write, say that about 85% of sicknesses that come to people, that come into them in the hospital or the clinic, is because of their emotional, psychological, and spiritual baggage that they have in their life. And that has reduced their immune system so that they can't fight off the viruses and so forth that come. Now, I don't know if that's an accurate figure or not, but let's just assume that it is. When, uh, my, my assumption is that you can eat these critters up there on top and it won't hurt you unless you may be full of bitterness and anger. And then there's hormonal structures within your body that are going to be violated by whatever's in that body and it's going to create some problems for you in digestion and sickness. Now, again, that may not be true, but I just kind of have a hunch that it is. So that when we are walking with the Lord in a, in, without sin and clear, you can eat almost anything and it, and it won't hurt you. In fact, the New Testament says they took some poison and they were able, it didn't affect them because their hearts and, and souls were clean. But if we allow bitterness, we allow pride, we allow whatever God says you should not allow in your life, we are susceptible at that point to disease and so forth that comes through these things. Well, that's just one idea. I really believe that, that God knows the best about what food is best for us. Another area, um, in the holidays that, that the world has, drunken, beating each other, um, immorality that goes on as over against Christians who get together like the pilgrims did to thank God for their safety. Holidays. God had special holidays that he wanted his people to have, but he wanted them to be in holiness. He wanted to give them direction as to how they should have their holidays. 
instead of just having drunken festivals that all the other nations around them were having. In Deuteronomy chapter 16, he says, Thou shalt observe the Feast of Tabernacles for seven days. I think that, I can just imagine that a lot of the young people uh, and, and the children looked forward to the Feast of Tabernacles every year. They, were, they couldn't wait. Because you know what it was? It was a national campout. <laughs> Feast of Tabernacles. Everybody went camping. They had their own little shack out there. They built it with uh, leaves and branches and so forth. Hey, Dad, we're going to go out there for a week of, of uh, camping. And it was a special reminder to the, the people of, of, of God's presence and, and so forth. So he says, Thou shalt observe the Feast of Tabernacles seven days. After that, you have gathered in your corn and your wine, and thou shalt rejoice in the feast, thou and thy son and thy daughter and thy manservant and thy maidservant and the Levite and the stranger and the fatherless and the widow, and all that are within their gates. Seven days shalt thou keep a solemn feast unto the Lord thy God in a place which the Lord shall choose, because the Lord thy God shall bless thee in all thy increase and all the works of thine hands. Therefore thou shalt surely rejoice. God was concerned that they'd have a time to just relax and get out there and be out in nature and, and you know, he, he was a loving God. He likes camping trips. You know, there's something about camping trips that brings every family together, right? You, you can't go on a camping trip without having a disaster, and disasters bring us together. Um, <clears throat> so, uh, something about camping and Feast of, of Tabernacles. Uh, God was, was initiating this. He was encouraging it. He was asking them to do it. Um, in the area of finances, there's Uncle Sam. His are empty. Um, God gave them direction. God loved the people. He gave them direction as to how to handle their finances. Again, in Deuteronomy chapter 15, it says, And this is the manner of the release. Every creditor that lendeth ought unto his neighbor shall release it. He shall not exact it of his neighbor or of his brother, because it's called the Lord's release. He's talking about the year of uh, release, the seventh year. Save when there shall be no poor among you. He said, if you do this way, then you're not going to have those that are destitutely poor and those that are extravagantly rich. It's going to level itself out. Every seven years, there was a program here for, for leveling out debts. Um, and this is part of the Old Testament. And thou shalt lend unto many nations. Because of that, they would lend to many nations and wouldn't borrow. Thou shalt reign over many nations, but they shall not reign over thee. So the cancellation of their debt every seven years presented, prevented the, the rise of the wealthy way up to the top of the economic ladder and the, the fall of the destitute clear to the bottom. It kept things in balance every seven years. Now, we've kind of abandoned that a long time ago. Um, but it is interesting that um, earlier in my lifetime, you could hardly get any loans for more than seven years. Now... You know, it's, it, it, some people are getting loans that their children are going to have to pay off. Uh, it, it's, they, why seven years? Well, that was what it was back here in the Old Testament. God gave that instruction. There was just a holy economic system. And it, it also climaxed on the 50th year when all the land would go back to the original owners. Now, we don't like all those ideas maybe today, but it did create an economic system that didn't have the extreme wealth and the extreme poverty. 
So <clears throat> debt was, was taken care of by God. God wanted a system for his people, his holy nation, that would eliminate debt. The whole thing of clothing. Um, in Deuteronomy 22, it talks about that thou shalt not wear a garment of diverse sorts, of woolen and linen together. I still don't understand what the, all the implications of that are. Uh, there's wisdom in that that God has that I, he hasn't given to me yet. I don't, I'm not sure what the... But he did say that on your clothing you're supposed to have fringes on the edge to, um, to cover themselves. And again, I'm not sure what those fringes look like. It's just uh, uh, what was instructed in Deuteronomy 22. Women shall not wear that which pertaineth unto a man. A little later on in that same chapter. <coughs> Neither shall a man put on a woman's garment... For all that do so are an abomination to the Lord thy God. So there again, rather than having feminine clothing, our culture has mixed them back and forth. So it's kind of hard sometimes to tell whether this is male or female. Um, even in our culture. Over in Thailand, it's even worse in some situations. There again, God was trying to preserve a people holy and beautiful. And... and um, this was some of the reasons he gave those instructions. In their hospitality, God had instructions for that as well. Um, in Leviticus chapter 19, you weren't allowed to look at your stranger that way. Okay, You weren't supposed to stare at him like that. Um, it, in fact, you were supposed to leave something in the corners of your fields and under your trees for him to pick up. And every time the stranger came into town... Um, so it says in Leviticus 19, And when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not wholly reap the corners of the fields, neither shalt thou gather the gleanings of, the, of thy harvest, and thou shalt not glean the vineyard, neither shalt thou gather every grape of thy vineyard. Thou shalt leave them for the poor and for the stranger. I, the Lord, I am the Lord your God. God was concerned that the strangers and the poor would have something to eat. His, his law was not made just to see if they would obey. No, he was concerned about people. He loved the people. And he knew that if they followed his law, they would have a prosperous and a, and a wonderful culture, wonderful environment. Um, Deuteronomy 24 uh, also emphasizes that hospitality thing. So they were to leave the uh, fruit that fell on the ground so that the stranger would have that. That's uh, uh, underscored again in Isaiah 58, but we'll keep moving. In their worship, the nation of Israel was set right in the middle of the Canaanites who had one of the most decadent worship systems ever known to man. I had a hard time understanding why God was saying to Israel, go in and completely destroy every man, woman, and child, and beast in some of these cities. It just seemed like God was going overboard uh, a bit until I began to understand the decadence of that culture. I won't take a lot of time to describe that tonight. It's just a horrible thing. Baal worship involved a fertility rite that would the, the, the people believed that in order to get the gods to have intimacy, which was necessary so that their crops would be 
would grow and their, their animals would, would have young, that the gods had to have intimacy. And in order to instigate the gods having intimacy, they would have open immorality, open adultery, open fornication on the streets of the cities. They would start out that whole process with a Baal um, uh, priest that would violate a virgin. And that would start a city-wide um, period of immorality. And so you know what would happen. Nine months later, you would have a whole bunch of babies being born. Those babies then would be about three months old when this festival came around the next year. And then those babies would be taken and offered to the god of Baal. There are burial grounds over there in various different places that are several acres in size and seven to nine levels deep of baby urns. The, 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 um, the remains after the babies have been burned in the, uh, the ashes of babies that have been burned in Baal worship. All of a sudden I can understand why God said it's time to get rid of that culture. In their worship, God had designed that their worship would be holy and righteous. It would be sons or fathers teaching their sons. It would be a, a nation of people who loved each other and loved their God as in contrast to the Baal worship that were around them. These regulations that God gave to them were not necessarily ends in themselves. They were not necessarily intrinsically valuable. They were the outflow of the beauty of holiness. These were laws and ceremonies that God gave to them. Um, you don't have a clock on the back, so I don't know what time it is. Or maybe you do have one back there. That's right. Maybe you can see that. What time are we supposed to quit? 8.30? 8.15? 8 o'clock? <laughs> hey, you might be here a long time. Uh, I'd like to have some of you read some scriptures for me, would you? Can you have some Bibles here tonight? Um, just to, to uh, have us read it together. Why all these laws and ceremonies? Why did God have them? Somebody take Deuteronomy 5.33. Who will take that? 5.33. Uh, you must be related to Courtney and, and um, the, the twins because they were always the first ones to take it in class. <laughs> Deuteronomy 6 verse 2. 6 verse 2. Deuteronomy 6 verse 18. Okay, and Deuteronomy 6, verses 24 and 25. 6, 24 and All right, and Deuteronomy 8, verse 1. Okay, let's just hold it at that. Um, this, these verses explain why God gave these laws and ceremonies. Let's go to Deuteronomy 5, 33. Read it loudly. Ye shall walk in all the ways which the Lord your God hath commanded you, you may live, and that it may be well with you, and that you may prolong your days in the land you shall possess. See why God wanted them to do that? 
that you could prolong your days. <laughs> That's a good thing. That's why he wanted them to follow those laws and so forth. Let's go to chapter 6, verse 2. That you may fear the Lord your God to keep all his statutes and his commandments which I command you, you and your sons and your grandsons, all the days of your life, and that your days may be prolonged. Amen. There it is again. Your days would be prolonged. I mean, God is wanting the best for them. He's not trying to shorten their life or make it difficult. He's wanting their life to be prolonged. Deuteronomy 6, verse 18. And you shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord, that it may go well with you, that you may go in, in and take possession of the good land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. Okay, that it may go well with thee. What a blessing. Deuteronomy 6, verses 24 and 25. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God, for our good always, that he might preserve us alive, as it is at this day. And it shall be our righteousness if we observe to do all these commandments before the Lord our God, as he hath commanded us. For our good always. For our good. Preserve us alive. Deuteronomy 8, verse 1. Every commandment which I command you today, you must be careful to observe, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land of which the Lord swore to your fathers. Amen. That you may live, multiply, go in, possess the land. God is not giving all these rules just to make their life difficult. He's giving them the law so that they'll be a blessed people. Can we even imagine what a community like God designed it to be would be like? Um, let me read one more in Deuteronomy chapter 4. It feels like in this particular scripture, God just pulls out all his, his reasons for why he gave them their laws and their, these ceremonies. Deuteronomy 4, verses 1 to 8, it says, Now therefore hearken, O Israel, unto the statutes and unto the judgments which I teach you. Now those are the things that most people don't like, statutes and judgments. It says, You hearken to them, for to do them, that ye may live, and go in and possess the land, which the Lord your God, your fathers, giveth you. Ye shall not add to the word which I command you, neither shall ye diminish aught from it, that ye may keep the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you. Your eyes have seen what the Lord did because of Baal, for all the men that followed Baal, the Lord thy God hath destroyed them from among you. But ye that did cleave unto the Lord your God are alive, every one of you to this day. Behold, I have taught you the statutes and judgments, even as the Lord my God commanded me, that ye should do so in the land whither ye go to possess it. Now catch this. This is the reason. Verse 6, he says, Keep therefore and do them, for this is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the nations, which shall hear all these statutes. And they're going to say, now listen, they're going to say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what nation is so great who hath God so nigh to them 
as the Lord our God is in all these things that we call upon Him for? And what nation is there so great that has statutes and judgments so righteous as all this law which I set before you today? Can you just hear the other nations? You know, just imagine that um, here's a village of people who are doing what God wants them to do in the Old Testament. And so you walk into this village, into this, this uh, community, there's no trash. This is a, uh, a clean, spotless streets. The yards are manicured, well-kept homes and so forth. As you walk in, you meet the first person. They're just extremely friendly. In fact, they, they stop and they come and ask you where you're from. And, hey, can we help you? Is there a place that you have for the night? If you don't, you're welcome to come to our place. I mean, you never met this person before. You're just shocked. They invite you into their home uh, when you're almost a total stranger. You see the children. They're robust. They're happy. They're playing in the yard. They're just having a great time. You just see something different about these children from all the other children you're aware of. There's numerous signs out at the restaurants in this town saying, if you're a stranger, if you're visiting here, come on in. We have a free food for you. You know, that's those apples under the trees. Um, and the... Um, you know, the, the courteous, smiling drivers that wave at you as, you as they go by. And you have these gracious, godly, radiant young ladies in the, in the um, uh, community without a hint of immodesty. They radiate a purity and a feminine mystique that draws respect. There's a whole bunch of young men that are talented and their demeanor just ex exudes the, uh, a sense of honesty and conviction. And they are hard workers and your car maybe breaks down and they just gather around and pick up the front end and change the tire or whatever before you even have a chance to, to do much of anything. Uh, you're drinking coffee, talking with these people, and they're fixing your car outside for nothing. Um, the churches you go to, just a sense of wonder and awe and love and smiles and radiance. Would you ever forget a community like that? That's what God intended Israel to be like. He wanted them to be such a special people that anybody who visited their cities would leave with a memory that they could never forget. The beauty of holiness is what he was intending. So God put them right in the middle of the world. Right where all the pathways of commerce would have to cross. So he placed them right there. He wants them to be seen because of the beauty of holiness. He says in Ezekiel chapter 20, On the day I swore to them that I would bring them out of Egypt into a land, I had searched out for them a land flowing with milk and honey, the most beautiful of all lands. This was going to be the tourist attraction of the cosmos where he was going to set them. God placed Israel right in the middle of the nations, at the crossroads of the nations, going from Egypt up in Mesopotamia, from Europe down into um, Persia and down into that part of Asia. Gezer was the intersection of all those nations. And Israel was, was intended to be there. But you know what happened? They didn't clean out the Baal-worshipping people and they moved up into the mountains. Instead of being at the crossroads, they were off in the mountains. 
what was God's intention? He wanted to show the world what it looks like to be a people of holiness. But Israel failed, miserably failed. Why? Because they wanted to be like the nations around them. They wanted to have a king like everybody else did. They wanted to worship Baal like everybody else did. You know, Gideon had refused to be a king. He said, no, the Lord's your king over you. I will not be a king. But then a little bit later, in Samuel's day, they wanted a king. And Samuel was just distraught. But God said, no, they haven't rejected you, Samuel. They've rejected me as their king. They want to be like all the nations, like all the peoples of the world who served wood and stone. So Israel effectively aborted their unique position to show the beauty of holiness to the nations. Their laws became despised. They were the very things that God had designed to make them beautiful, but now they saw those laws as ugly and unnecessary and didn't want to follow them. And so when they would try to worship in the tabernacle, the temple, and so forth, God said through Amos, I hate your festivals. I hate your feast days. I will not smell your solemn assemblies. Though you offer me burnt offerings and your meat offerings, I will not accept them. Neither will I regard your peace offerings or your fat beasts. Why? Because they had lost the beauty of God's holiness. Can we sense God's utter disappointment with Israel? Totally, they were totally clueless about what God wanted to show through them because they wanted to be like the rest of the world around them. They didn't have a clue what they were missing. They were disgustingly blind and deaf. They didn't even finish with first grade in the beauty school. You know, they cloistered themselves off. <clears throat> Instead of being in the center where God placed them, there was groups of them that um, moved up into the mountains and they cloistered themselves away on the mountaintops. They stayed in the huddle. They didn't get out into the, the highways and byways of life. It's so sad because the Jews apostatized to the point where they viewed their external separation from the Gentiles as guarantee that they were God's chosen people. Though their heart was no different than the pagans around them. Their position as a chosen people had degenerated into pride and exclusiveness. The nations looked on. And instead of seeing beauty and holiness and joy and character and purity, they only saw God's judgment. Brothers and sisters, that's not what he wants us to share. <clears throat> he wants us to have a, 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 another opportunity to show the beauty of his holiness we want to talk about that tomorrow evening. Acts 3, stage 3 of the beauty of holiness. Let's bow our heads in a word of prayer.
Father, we thank you that you are so patient and even when we as men and women as people abort the opportunities to show the world the beauty of your holiness, you don't give up on us. You don't throw away that opportunity and, and uh, reject it, but you, you have other plans. You know where you're going. And Lord, as we think about the way that you want to show your beauty and your holiness, in this third phase, I pray that you prepare us as a people to hear what your spirit would say to us as we're called to demonstrate your beauty, to love your law because you are a God of love. Your love was what made the law. You have just as much love in the Old Testament as you do in the New Testament. You never changed. And so your love was shown to your people because you want to protect them. Lord, help us not to have the same spirit that the Israelites did where they rejected your law, thinking there was a better way or another way, a more fun way, a more exciting way. They destroyed the picture that you wanted to give to the world of the beauty of holiness. So guide us as we continue throughout this week. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.